0: Welcome to Behind the Mirror, a place where students in an online program can have the experience of sitting with professors and learning all the little things you only learn behind the mirror. Today I'm excited to have a guy on named Alex Vosch, who um, is <laughs> doing so many different things. Um, and how I first got exposed to his work was he has this incredible series of online videos where he talks to experts in the field. Um, so Alex, give, a, give us a little introduction. Yourself. All right.
1: Okay. Thanks, Jordan, for inviting me. So, like, okay, what's the two lines of Alex? I guess, like, I'm a psychotherapy researcher uh, and a clinician, and now recently also a college uh, professor giving some classes and advising to students' master's thesis. So those are, like, my three identities, I guess. And I, I have a huge passion for integrating, like, research and practice So I guess that's we'll talk about that. I'm sure. Uh, And I guess like the just the other piece of it is just um, I work for two uh, big um, societies, psychotherapy societies. They're both American. It's uh, SPR, Society for Psychotherapy Research, and SEPI, which is the Society for Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration, which is cool because they kind of they both like. In conjunction, they work in my two main interests. SPR kind of works with like uh, this dialogue with between research and practice, which is wonderful. And CEPI is also like it has a bit of that research and practice piece, but also just like a, a common interest in like common factors in psychotherapy, like what's expertise and how to foster it in psychotherapy, like what are the main principles between each ter- different therapy approach. So, I've been doing a lot of stuff, like helping out with their conferences and a lot of video content, you know, a
0: bunch of stuff, like you said. Yeah. How did you get into the field? How did you get into counseling?
1: Well, I guess there are some answers to that, but I guess the first one I can say is that psychotherapy kind of seemed like the perfect union of all of my teenage interests, which was a deep interest, first of all, from philosophy to hard sciences. Um, so those are like the two main things. It kind of seemed to join the philosophical piece in a sense, and I was very much, you know, into existential philosophy. Uh, so that piece was an important part, and then just, you know, a deep respect for for science in general and sucking at math so thinking well well if i'm not really going to be like a talented physician like uh, a physicist i might as well you know try to find something that gives me that part of the research you know side of my life and also just uh, i guess that's like the more like you know formal answer the more personal answer is that i i dealt with a lot of mental health issues when i was a teenager and it helped me so much to find out like it seemed crazy at the time that there was a whole field dedicated to it you know when i found out that oh my god people get trained you know to be in front of other people and help them i went into psychotherapy and did psychodynamic therapy for five years and then the next year of cognitive therapy and half of the time i was i was just shocked honestly that this job even existed you know I, i would start ending up having conversations with my therapist like you actually do this for a living like but like amazed in a good way you know like that's so cool like you study this so I guess like when I was 17 I was like okay I want that you know that sounds great I don't know what to do better than that so let's try that and you know I've been loving it ever since that's
0: awesome, that's awesome. <laughs> man so how did you get into making the uh, to making the videos and interviewing like a lot of the big the big names in the field?
1: Yeah. Well, you're gonna. This is gonna sound kind of cheesy, motivational, but like when I talk about it, there's really no other way to put it, because it's kind of like you always think that there's a glass ceiling that it's impossible to reach. Certain types of people, you know, in life in general. Like you think, well, this guy will never answer me or whatever. I mean, what I did, I, as I was saying, like I was really a lot into the research and research and history of psychotherapy. So I was reading. You know a shitload of things on psychotherapy. I'm loving that. Um, but basically, like, I, I had this crazy idea uh, what if I just made a list of my psychotherapy heroes and I'll just send an email to all of them <laughs> saying, Hi, I'm this guy from Portugal. Uh, at the time, I was just like in this uh, student association in Portugal and already starting you know, to get into SPR and CEPI, but you know, just starting and like to my complete disbelief everyone i contacted answered me like the the same day or the day after that and like this might be even a cultural thing but for me it was almost shocking because if i were to send an email to a teacher of mine in college they would take like one month to answer and that was like <laughs> sending an email to like the president of some huge psychotherapy society and they were politely answering and saying, sure, you know, okay, let's talk. And I kind of found out that, you know, uh, because I have this whole other life, you know, of being like a musician and everything else, and in so many other different fields, um, everything is so much further ahead in terms of like social media and video presence and everything, like what you're doing right now, you know, so much content. And psychotherapy, not really. I found that out. There was a real gap just in terms of content in general there was a lot of like articles and books but you know video content and interviews not a whole lot or basically nothing so it seemed like a perfect thing and i noticed that my colleagues really didn't read a lot you know i'm not judging i'm just saying that to my, most of my peers they just didn't read books or articles so i thought okay so i have all these psychotherapy heroes if I, maybe if i make like videos just talking with them like excitedly talking about their work Maybe it will take off and people will, you know, read their stuff. And I was really surprised not only by the interviewees responding, but by people actually watching the videos. I mean, I think the total count now is, is like uh, 300,000 views or something like that. So it's really taken off and it was very surprising. And I guess it was kind of something, it was just a gap to be filled, basically. But yeah, like the basically the short answer is like, I had a list. I sent the emails and they answered, and I've been doing it ever since.
0: <laughs> I had some of that same experience, and it is strange, you know. I, the last person we talked to uh, that you probably know of was Scott Miller. He was just That's the so. nicest guy, you know. He just wants his he wants his ideas to be out there and for people to improve as counselors. That's his heart, right? Um, so yeah, like I emailed him and. I'm like, Scott's never gonna respond to this. <laughs> and lo and sure. he's like, Yeah, I'd love to come talk to your students and share what I've learned and it was a great conversation.
1: I, I listened to it was a great conversation, congratulations on it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And and I mean, uh just, just to say this, Scott was my fourth interview, I think, so I got the exact same experience you had, you know. I I was into his work, Scott's you know, oh, a great researcher and I think he's doing a huge benefit to the field honestly so yeah I I, I share your you know
0: your surprising surprising and
1: yeah, yeah.
0: and I'm sure like as I'm hearing it sounds like it's just been such an enriching experience for you
1: yeah 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 you know because these are people that you know they they know a lot, and it's 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 almost moving in a certain sense because a lot of them suffer from this kind of academic tower complex that even they don't want, which is like only other academic people know about them or read them. Yeah. So they almost get moved. I got some interviews where the interviewee was kind of moved at you know that I was so excited about their work. It's like, oh, people actually read when I write, you know. So, I think. Of course I've been a huge benefiter of the whole experience and I hope other people have too. But I'm I'm happy to say and I think, you know, this is I think it's true to say that the interviewees have gotten something out of it and are getting something out of it. And that's that's really cool to see also. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I completely agree. You know, some of these people are so high level, but they're high level in these very, very small circles. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I think like you do, that work needs a broader audience, really, because it is so profound. Um, yeah, and so I, I do think that you know they get a lot out of it because they're like, okay, wow, somebody <laughs> read this book that I poured my soul into for for five years, and I'm like, yeah, exactly. People need to know about it. People. Know <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's you're touching on a different on a, a, a topic we were coming into before, which is our field is not. Uh, a hugely technological one. I think there's still a, a lot of work to do in terms of just modernizing it, you know, catching up to 2018 in a way. And part of that is, like, I think it's very unrealistic. It makes sense. Like, it's the academic culture maybe some people come from. But, it. it you know, nowadays it doesn't really make sense to just write a book and just hope to God that people read it, you know. That's not really a realistic, I think, solution to disseminating good information. I think what you're doing right now is a much better solution, to be honest.
0: Well, even something that I've noticed, there are a few people who I follow when they make their you know, podcast rounds. Yeah. And I have learned so much from listening to um, someone do a podcast over here. And then they do a different podcast over here, and they talk about it in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. But for me, it enriches what they're talking about, right? And so yeah. that's something that I feel like you can't get from a book. Like it's 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 almost like having a conversation with them, yes. because yeah. the interviewer asks different questions in different podcasts, and so you can get a much fuller view of what the person is trying to say than I think you can from just a book, which is kind of static. I agree. I'm a big I mean, reader. Like I love books.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I'm not, you know, like passionate books at all. Um, yeah, it's yeah. just it's just a different thing.
1: I, th- I I totally agree, and I think the book has a lot of fantastic qualities. But I think one difference with like you know video content or podcasts is that usually talks are more unedited than books, and books like a good book tries to distill stuff. Which is like that's that's a great sign that people can distill information, but of course that leaves out a lot of like personal stuff and opinions and you know. So I guess I've always been a huge fan of interviews in general, um, just because it it usually allows to get a different taste of the person, and also you know if we're talking to like researchers, for instance, or even just writers or whatever, they usually. I'm not saying this is every time but they usually feel less pressured in a you know one of these type of interviews to be at least a bit more open informal than they would have to be if they were to publish a book yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. yeah i think that um i think another part of this and i'm interested in hearing your thoughts is i've started watching videos not of myself yet I not have camera issues, but of other therapists, mm-hmm. uh, because we have online databases now, right? So I've been watching through a series of Virginia Sotir videos, mm-hmm. and to me, that is such a blessing. Hmm. Um, because when I was in my master's program, I didn't see anybody do therapy, right? Like it's like yeah. your supervisor yeah. doesn't really watch you. Um, you might watch a clip of a tape. You know, but now because we have these online databases of experts doing their model, yeah, I feel like that's such a huge
1: uh, oh man
0: thing that you know is going to be the future of the field.
1: Yeah. Oh man, you're touching on maybe if not my favorite topic, maybe the like top three for sure. Like, listen, when I, when I found out and props here to, like, Victor Yalom for psychotherapy.net, for instance. Yes,
0: that's exactly what I'm talking
1: about. Yeah, like, when I found that out, my head exploded, totally. Because I was such, like, like you, maybe, and like a lot of people, I'm sure, you know, we read a lot, you know, we were trying to put the pieces together, and it was a really confusing mess of theories and models and whatever. And... F- like, I remember when I saw the Gloria tapes on YouTube, it was, it was fantastic because, you know, oh my God, actual therapy. Because the only thing I knew about actual therapy was my own therapy, you know. I, I had nothing else to go for. So, when I felt like people know me around here in Lisbon as the video junkie, because I've dedicated the last, like, four or five years of just trying to pull together the biggest video base I can from every website, you know, everything. Because that's become maybe my main after the you know just years of just tearing your eyes out reading that's probably become my main source of um, of learning yeah. actually looking at the tape because I think it's you know and the more research I read also on this I think the more it makes sense like it's so easy to like you know and therapists don't do it on purpose but to get like give a an, a biased report of what went on in the therapy room. So you know, whatever therapists say happen in therapy room, at best is like a, a, a slightly biased version. At worst, it's completely false. You know. So and again, like there for me at least, there's nothing compared to actually seeing what happened. Uh, and some models, you know, some therapy models actually deal a lot with that. I, I'm thinking now specific of like emotion-focused therapy from Leslie Greenberg or ADP from the NFO like these are there are some models like they really just want to do research based on actual video take sessions I think that's the way to go honestly
0: yeah I think that you're right man it's funny you say that because I feel like my favorite interview that you've done was with Leslie <laughs> he is fascinating just, yes yeah. just fascinating man
1: yeah and he's a Monster researcher. I mean, Leslie. I think so. I've done some trainings with him you have. in the past. I have, yeah. I've been, I've trained with Les, and like Les for me is probably, and I'm gonna say something, which might sound a bit exaggerated, but keep in mind, I interviewed all of my heroes, so <laughs> <laughs> like, I think Les is probably the best example of a. Scientist practitioner, I know. Yes. Like for me, he's probably the perfect union of a researcher and clinician. Yes. Because he's an an incredible researcher and an incredible clinician, which is so mind-boggling if you think about. it Because I think these are like I think you should, as much as possible, try to join these two professions. But they are different professions. Yes. Like you can be awesome at one and terrible in, in the other. Yes. You know. Unless
0: it's is just... <laughs> yeah. I feel that from him. I mean, I haven't had a chance to speak with him. I would love to. But I, f- I definitely feel that. I've, this is somebody who... Um, and, like... I've interviewed a few people that I'm like, you are great researchers. And I love your work. But I'm not sure you're, like, the top-level clinician, which is fine. It's totally fine. I even I even interviewed a lady, uh, Sabern Fisher who does a lot with neurofeedback. Ah. Um, she was phenomenal. And hmm. that's whole that's the whole part of the field that like I would love to get into. But she's it was not... a good
1: interview. Hmm? It was a good interview, I heard it.
0: Oh yeah, it was great. Um, hmm. but she's not doing the psychotherapy stuff, right? And yeah. I think she's a yeah. perfect example of she is a master at what she's doing. Yeah. That's not quite what I'm doing, and like for people you know he wants to be like me. he wants that really you know great masterful sort of this is how psychotherapy is done. I think Leslie Greenberg is yeah, right in that perfect middle,
1: yeah, and i I think this touches on a, a really cool topic, which is like as you might know, maybe one of my Favorite topic, is, its the idea of expertise in therapy and trying to like dissect what that means. And I, I really like this this distinction that John Norcross did in one article, recent like 2017 article on expertise. And basically, he says that there are two types of expertise in psychotherapy, which is like you can be an expert about psychotherapy and an expert doing psychotherapy, and those are totally different things. It's kind of like being great at being a football commentator. But if you actually put the commentary in the field, you'd be like, "Dude, <laughs> get out of there!" <laughs> yes, and that can totally happen. I mean, most of our trainings, very frankly, are aimed at making us good therapy commentators. Yeah. You yeah, know, right. like you learn, you know, how to talk a good therapy. You know, how to write a good paper on therapy. But to actually do therapy, I think it's a very different, you know. Skill and I think it it, it needs very different methodologies.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite books as of late is Peak. Aha! Uh, Andrews Erickson.
1: Fantastic book.
0: Oh man, that book probably changed my life. I've I've had a series of books that have changed my life, and that is hands down. Because that's a, exactly what what you're talking about of the actual practitioner level. Yeah, it's a different skill. Yeah, um, and. Lots of times, across disciplines, we don't, we don't train that really, really well. And,
1: you know, going back to Scott, he was the first one, well, he wasn't the first one to, to talk about the practice in psychotherapy context. That was actually a man called Franz Kaspar. But the, the main guy popularizing it, who actually brought it to the forefront, was Scott Miller. And I've been very influenced by him, but I have been collaborating even more with uh, Tony Romanieri, and Tony's just awesome. Like, he's a fantastic dude. You should talk with him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I want to have him on. He's, cause you could oh, yeah, also a great re-
0: interview with him as well.
1: Yeah, yeah he's fantastic. People. We've been doing a lot of work together, and, and it's basically just drilling down, like, deliver practice for therapists. And, you know, you really see how different it is than talking,
0: you know, knowing how to talk about therapy. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of have a hunch that, like... I don't know how it is um, in Portugal, but if we could somehow crack open this confidentiality nut, yeah, their their therapy would improve because, at least in the states, I feel like the culture of confidentiality means that we are not actually watching tapes. Hmm. No one actually knows what's going on. Uh,
1: It's an interesting perspective, you know. I've been, of course, I've been thinking a lot about this in the past years, I guess, you know, no one, I think in their right mind thinks that they can become an expert with little effort. And I kind of see that, you know, all the ethical issues and the safety issues and confidentiality issues as part of the whole cake of, well, if you want to be an expert, you know, this is part of the deal you're going to have to deal with you know finding a secure line to videotape your clients and being good at negotiating videotaping with your clients and having consent forms i just see that all as part of the basketball training we're trying to get at you know it's kind of like if you want to be the best you're going to do the extra work and part of the extra work in our particular field is knowing about consent knowing about cameras knowing about you know uploading files safely yeah. it's Part of the business, I guess. That's fair.
0: It's a <laughs> um, easier not to do it, of course. Yeah, and that goes back to something <laughs> you we're talking about before the before the recording is. A lot of this has to do with how easy is it for clinicians to do. Yeah. Which, let's be real, until what the past five, ten years, video video recording wasn't easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, what is the culture of your agency?
1: Yeah, yeah, yes, That everything, and, and, you know, to be fair, even if those two issues were not an issue, it's still a huge toll for clinicians, because they have to manage, you know, the the recordings, and they have to actually use the recordings, you know, if you just record, and it just sits there in your laptop or whatever, it doesn't do you any good, yeah. So this goes back to what you were saying before we started recording which is this is there is a, a very unfair thing about the over practice is that it's unpaid work. That's kind of the bottom line unfortunately is that if you would want to be an expert in psychotherapy you're going to do a lot of unpaid work. And a lot of people don't want to do that and that, that's fair <laughs> it makes sense you know I don't think we need a field of experts I don't think I don't think that exists first of all. You know, not everyone is supposed to be an expert. I don't think that expertise research should be just targeted at creating experts. It should be targeted at at least providing good enough services, you know? So, this isn't to say that now you should, like, okay, stop seeing 10 of your clients so you have more time to practice, but trying to find better ways, you know, to make it viable in the long term.
0: As you're saying that I was wondering. If that's part of why people like Leslie are so good. because I think oh. always his research is a form of deliberate practice.
1: I have a very serious hunch on some therapists I interviewed that part of what makes them great has to do exactly what you're saying: is that their context of their academic context and type of research where they had to see a lot of graduate students like doing therapy. They had to see a lot of themselves doing therapy. That that's a part of the lower practice. Like one of the key factors of the world practice is observing your own performance. That's like the first rule. And it's ridiculous how how rare this first rule exists in our field. Like most of us don't do not observe our performance, you know? So yeah, Les has watched a lot of himself. And Diana Fosha has lost, uh, has seen a lot of herself. So, some of these therapists have really, you know, recorded themselves, and I'm sure that has had an impact on them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, this is always the question that I come to is what's on the far side of therapy? You know, if, if we actually, I mean, think and I always have these sort of grand sort of ideas, right? But say that right out of um, your master's program, or in your master's program, I'm not sure how they do it, where you are but in, your, in the states to you have a master's program and then a doc program mm-hmm. um, from day one you were watching tapes watching yeah. yourself deliberately practicing um, at your weak points. I really wonder what does that clinician look like? Because <laughs> that would be different experience than i like, think the majority of us have yes
1: I, I we're just now starting to create a new graduate program based on that
0: Holy if smokes, you're... you're not i might have to go back to school <laughs> <laughs> <It> was, but... <laughs> so
1: yeah so basically like approaching a whole graduate program two-year program based on psych therapy, research and delivery practice that's it so, <laughs> oh my gosh! And it's like it's like honestly, it feels like one of those social experiment movies because you have no idea what's gonna happen because it's never been done. Oh man! <laughs> and so I'm very excited. I mean, off the bat, I know that whenever we do workshops, like isolated workshops on deliberate practice, we have a huge response because like trainees all of a sudden feel like, oh, okay, like. It's totally different, like, you know, that they talk about therapy, but when you actually put them, like, with a video stimulus and the clip ends and it's like, now it's your turn to speak, and they're like, holy shit, what? I don't know. Like, that's so important to actually put them in the hot seat, constantly, repeatedly monitor their performance. So, just the little experiments we have done have been valuable to them. This is their input. We are doing some, you know, Frutoni, Romanieri, and other people. We're starting to do more and more like little studies, mainly qualitative studies, uh, in different places, of trying to, you know, do their practice exercises and seeing the response of the trainees. But going back to your what you called grandiose which I don't think it's grandiose I think it's necessary I think that if the field were to go in a direction where it would take seriously the research I'm pretty sure in the future we would have more programs more focused on like procedural learning yes you'd have classes of course for knowledge and models and theory and research of course but a good chunk of it would be actual performance no enhancer.
0: Yeah, I think the thing about all of that that's kind of crazy to me is, especially if you read Peak, which is basically um, for students who haven't read that book yet, you have to read
1: Do it. Do it. Do it.
0: It's the book about how deliberate practice um, is the way that humans learn skills. And part of what you see in that book is how, because certain skills like music uh, have been so refined, and we know really well how to, talk, how to teach them. The level of, you know, um, even like average to like master musicians now is so much higher than it was in like, you know, Beethoven's time or yeah. Mozart's time, right? Yeah. Um, both. <laughs> both. Yeah, both. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, you know, if, 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 you know, Juilliard dropouts now are better than Mozart was. Like what does that mean for therapy? Like, like like what is the world when everybody is you know well, for, at least ter- like like Leslie. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like- well for
1: therapy right now it means that we're off track because it means that there's a lot of fields that have been doing this for a long time and we haven't. Yes. Which again, let's be fair, we are a much younger field than most fields. Yeah. So that's that's to be expected in one way. But yeah, man, I mean if if this were to happen, and like let's imagine like the the peak inspired uh, graduate programs would flourish or whatever. I think like maybe this is rose colored glasses I'm wearing, but I think we would probably have a, a much greater percentage of therapists at which perform performing at competency certain core skills, you know. That people used to call Rogerian but now it's just like common factors. You know, like good empathic, you know, skills, warmth, and judgment. You know, all of these things, interpersonal skills, basically. I I I think that we will probably have much better therapists, on average. You know, if that was something to be worked on, because I, I guess the dark side of this talk is that it's not that we're not doing nothing, it's that a lot of the things we're focusing on doesn't seem to map on to actually outcomes. You know, the type of learning we have and the content of that learning, you know. I don't want to judge too early because some of this research, you know, has been going on for a long time, but other hasn't. And, you know, there's people who invested their whole careers into, like, really knowing a model. So I I know that for us young guys, it's much easier to come up and say, yeah, but learning a model doesn't correlate with outcomes. I, I get that for, like, the guy who's been, like, you know, studying psychoanalysis for 50 years. To hear
0: that, dude, that's aggressive. You know, yeah. Otto Kernberg is not going to like this this conversation.
1: Oh no. not at all. I, I don't know. If I should say this, but I I almost interviewed Otto Kernberg. I had him on Skype, but was <laughs> I had scheduled with his assistant uh, for a fifty minute interview, but uh, for some reason they understood a fifteen minute interview oh. and. I was like, okay, so we have 15 minutes. And I was like, no, nope, not going to cut it. I mean, because if I want to get something out of this book, other than all the other 70 books you've already published, I'm going to need more than 15 minutes. Yeah, so that didn't out. <laughs> yeah.
0: So how do you make sense? This is something that I'm trying to figure out for myself. How do you make sense with, with um, exactly what you were just talking about, right? Like dedicating yourself to a model does not correlate to client outcomes um, yep. with the work that people like, you know, AEDP and, and the EFT people are putting out, which in some sense is a model. Yeah,
1: so these are our models. And again, this is not to say that models are a bad thing. They're super important. I just think that a lot of times they're important for different reasons than the founders think it is. So I think models so okay let's go back a little my probably the most important psychotherapy book for me personally is Jerome Frank's Persuasion and Healing so Jerome Frank was this I think brilliant guy researcher um, clinician who basically established like really established the idea of common factors it had been of course talked about before but he really developed like a meta theory for it and one of the main things he talked about is that like every model in some way or another has like the idea of the healer, basically like the authority figure that knows supposedly better than you about something, even if he's not authoritarian, of course. There's always a frame, like some sort of rationale that kind of organizes, not just the treatment, but like organizes the experience of the other. So, like, the chaos of, oh, my God, how, why am I feeling what I'm feeling or whatever. Every model in their own way has what Jeremy Frank called a myth. You know, he, they all try to organize your own experience. So that's another common factor. And they all, in, any, in some way, have some sort of ritual that, you know, happens either inside or outside the therapy that kind of creates the expectation that if this happens, you're going to get better. And for me this was a super important book for a lot of reasons. First of all, I think it's brilliantly written. I think it's super solid in terms of like critical thinking and scientific research. But also because as a meta theory, it kinda all of a sudden like a light bulb goes out in like, oh okay, so be it CBT or psychodynamic or EFT or whatever, you know, they all have like procedures, they all have like a rationale for why they're doing what they're doing they're all communicating that rationale in some way to the client and what Jerome Frank suggested and a good portion of common factors research suggests is that having that those common features like is the, the major piece of the pie in terms of like outcomes so this is to say that like models are very important but I think it's fair to put a question mark in why they are important you know, and maybe they're important for different reasons than we originally thought they were. Um, so of course, this puts a lot of questions and you know, embarrassing questions uh, to a lot of us, you know, because why should then I focus on one model and not the other? Well, part of the answer is that if you clearly prefer one model, you're clearly going to be more persuasive in talking about that model and intervening with that model with a client. And you know, as much as therapists don't like the the thought of like their work as a persuasive act, I, I have to admit like everything indicates that this is a social influence performance job. You know, you're there to influence the client, not to manipulate, not to control. But if you didn't influence, they shouldn't pay you. So there is an, there is some way in which this is a persuasive job, and you have to communicate a lot of values, a lot of ideas. Um, and I, I guess the best in the field, I think is probably fair to say, are also the best at doing that, at being really succinct and really good at like giving you a clear, coherent explanation of what's happening, why it's happening, and what you can do about it. You know? Sorry for the long-winded question. No, no, it, <laughs> so, was
0: a, it was a great response. It just gets those, those gears turning. Uh-huh, great. Yeah. I think that that's definitely true. I think that's why certain people, um, certain life coaches succeed, over, mm-hmm. even over therapists. And I feel like um, the therapists that I know who are most successful and the life coaches that I've seen, even like Tony Robbins, right? He's a, he's a, he's a life coach. Yep. But he's also got a very clear like vision that I think if you buy into... Yeah, it's very um, it makes him very charismatic, which I think oh, half yeah. of half of the
1: uh, definitely. Uh, and I, think, I, I mean, people can get really pissed off at me saying this, but I, I think that there's not a lot of difference scientifically with between like therapy, coaching, counseling, other like secular traditions, you know, because the basic idea is the same. You have someone there who supposedly knows something more than you or at least should be able to help you and they're going to give you something, whatever that is, that's going to help you go from point A to point B, you know, in a way that it's that simple. And, you know, and I've studied a lot of these people like not because I'm a coach or I'm super into coaching, but I'm super into like interpersonal skills and the impact of persuasiveness. I'm actually advising now master's theses on therapist persuasiveness specifically. And Tony Robbins, who is one of the people I've been reading into, he says that persuasion is like the key communication skill. So this is, I think a really underestimated common factor that we still need a lot of research on in psychotherapy. Yeah.
0: I'm not personally. I'm not as bought into that idea as I think okay. um, you know you and Scott are. But I gotta say, you can't read the research, even the basic research on like uh, like Robert Caldini book, right? Influence. You can't read that book and then go about thinking, oh, this is just what I'm doing in the room. All right? There are all these other factors that make you more or less influential yeah and so if you're going to ignore them you're going to ignore a huge like you said common factor of like why what you're doing is working or not working
1: definitely, definitely.
0: i think i think the best example for me in this is Gottman has a video i need to get the book on um trust and he says you know in high-trust regions, interventions work. And in low-trust regions, he's talking about social interventions. The yeah, same intervention will not work. Like, that's yeah. an influence issue.
1: I mean, that's a great example. Let me give you an even more extreme one. Uh, another line of research I love is the placebo research, placebo effect. And one fascinating thing about that... There's a lot of fascinating things about I think the whole placebo thing is fascinating. But one specific fascinating thing is that... Different psychiatrists, if they give you the same placebo, they're gonna have different effects. <laughs> okay, check that out. Of so, we talk about therapist effects, but there's like psycho psychiatrist effects, counselors' effects, uh, churchman effects, you know, <laughs> like you know, that piece of it. And it's part of, in part, it can be explained through this idea of the rationale, you know, and the trust and the the client giving uh, hope and expectations to that situation, you know, it's there. I mean, people, like, about 20% of people on trials get hooked, like, dependent on placebo pills. Like, can you believe that, you know? It, it's not just the placebo effect has an effect, like a symptomatic effect. People think they're taking uh, real medication, and they get dependent on the, that non-medication.
0: You gotta send me that that study.
1: I will send you that. It's not just one st- If it were <laughs> one study, I would not be talking about it. This is like <laughs> repeatedly, you know?
0: What? That's crazy.
1: I mean, it really speaks to the, well, as corny as it sounds, to the power of belief, yeah. you know? And, I mean, we are meaning-making creatures, and, you know, you can go a lot into If you're into the neuroscience, you know, you can nerd out on that just to understand why this happens. But the, the bottom line is if people don't buy into it, it's not very effective probably.
0: Yeah. It's the same with, like, diets, right? There are any number of diets that will work. But if you don't believe in keto or if you don't believe in slow carb or whatever, you're, it's just it's not going to work for you.
1: Get it, yeah, yeah. Well, and if you don't put in the work, that's the other thing, and you need motivation to put in the work, and where do you get that motivation? Part of it is actually, yeah, having and having like that arousal of, like, okay, this like this makes sense, I'm gonna lose a lot if I don't do it, you know. And that's where I think our field can learn a lot. Here, I'm gonna be controversial again, can learn a lot from coaches. Like, good coaches supposedly are people who are like really good at. Like showing you how much you're gonna lose if you don't do whatever it is you should be doing.
0: Well, even that goes back to Caldini and, and scarcity, right? Like one of his influence principles is scarcity. Yeah. Or exactly. um, Kahneman, right? Loss prospect theory.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's all there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Man. So we were talking before this also about you know tracking your outcomes, and you do that through an online program. Um, yeah. And I guess I'm wondering how do you use that in your practice? Well,
1: there's a lot of ways to do it. I, I, I have, I, full disclosure, for some time I did it every single session with the PCOMs. This is the the of change. Man. Oh my God! And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what PCOM stands for. <laughs> Shit. Okay, this is Scott Miller and the. Uh, Jesus Christ! I'm blanking out. PCOMs, people. <laughs> it's called PCOMs. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you can use it session by session to track your outcomes and alliance measure. And I did it for a while. And I've actually switched recently, honestly, for some reasons, uh, which we can get into. But I've switched now, just trying out to do the core OM, which is a larger measure. It's 32 um, items. So it it goes a little bit more in-depth. But I don't do it every session. I do it every five sessions. Okay? Um, so, what's the question?
0: <laughs> Just how do you integrate it into your practice? And then, like, what do you use it for?
1: Well, <clears throat> in terms of the integrated, are you asking about uh, how I present it in the setting itself, like with the clients?
0: Like, after you have the, the scores, right? So you give them the success. Oh, yeah, yeah. Their scores, And then what do you yeah. do with that information?
1: Oh, okay, 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 great. So I think this is a, I think one thing that hasn't been really talked about a lot is that this kind of integrates perfectly with a different kind of research by Jeremy Safran and Chris Moran, which was on metacommunication. So basically the idea that sometimes you have to talk about what's going on between therapist and client. And I think the routine outcome monitoring is kind of an awesome excuse to go there. (laughs) Like, first of all, of course, like it tracks outcomes and it signals like when things are not getting better or are even getting worse. So that's helpful, you know. It kind of helps you like stay sharp on whose whose clients should you be more worried about in a way. And then when you know which clients those are, you can say, hey, I've noticed a couple of things. Maybe you can talk about in-session things, but you can also like, mention the outcomes themselves. Like, okay, you've been reporting that you know you don't really feel a lot better in this, this, and that. Uh, and I'm wondering if we can focus on this, because, of course, I want to be the most helpful to you. What do you think is going on? Blah, blah, blah. So I think the, the outcome measure can be a, a great complement just to meta-communicate on the process, and it kind of gives a almost just ther, in terms of therapy setting, it gives almost like also a, a good standing. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor and they take your temperature, you know, and if something's off, they'll say, oh, something is off. You know, we have to do something. The outcome can kind of function in that sense. Can It kind of creates that whole culture of like, we're interested in actual results and what's going on. And if the measure says that something is, is off we can take that with the information you already give me and take that seriously um, I think also it's very important just in terms of its connection with the therapeutic alliance because usually when like you see clients stalling in therapy or, or deteriorating in therapy one safe bet is that something in terms of the alliance is off be it the bond you have with this person, or be it that uh, the negotiation of goals and tasks in therapy is really off. So if you see through the outcome measuring that uh, you know therapy doesn't seem to be working, I guess one safe bet, at least one initial good safe bet is to think, okay, is this like, we are not really agreeing or finding good therapy goals? Like what's the end result of what we're doing? Or maybe we have to rethink the tasks, like what's the means to our end, and maybe what we've been trying out has not been working for this goal. So I guess, you know, it complements really nicely with Alliance, and as you probably know, like Alliance is probably the most uh, researched and predictive common factor in, in psychotherapy. So I think there's a great connection there, you know, a practical connection there that could really help clinicians. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I like it. I've definitely known, I've definitely seen a lot of that alliance stuff and even goal stuff uh, yeah. come up. And I've been surprised that people have been, for the most part, pretty honest. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. There's this fear, at least going. I think for me, it was an unconscious fear. Mm-hmm. But when people started to give me feedback, yeah. I was like, wow, like, that's really helpful. Uh-huh. I would have never known that yeah. I didn't think you would, you would tell me that and so for me, <laughs> for me, it's been really helpful, I'm really cool I, you know.
1: I, it's really it's really funny you're saying that because that's it's still a question in my mind but for the most part it's been answered is the idea of how honest will the client be and I've been also surprised with in general a lot more than I expected In general, people want to get better, so they will, if you ask in a curious, open-minded way, they will usually answer to the best of their ability. And like when I interviewed, for instance, uh, David Burns, who's like this pretty famous like CBT guy, he does uh, measures every single session. And, you know, in his workshops, he's constantly saying like, if you want to look who's really scared about receiving feedback, it's not the client. (laughs)
0: <laughs> the therapists are afraid receiving feedback.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's hard, of course. You know, I-, I think that's another area we need to be trained at, and that we're usually not trained at, to ask for feedback. And, you no, know, we want the positive feedback, but also we want to be excited, as, as, as paradoxical as it may seem, to be excited about receiving negative feedback. And I think that's a, that's a muscle, that's a skill that you, we usually don't, you know, we aren't born <laughs> with wanting
0: negative feedback. Yeah. You, you
1: know?
0: Yeah, I think that that's true, man. I think for me, it's also weird because I think I would, I think I definitely didn't. It, I think at times it can be hard to hear, and I think for me, I'm at this point now where I feel like it's such a joint operation, and so if clients can course correct us. Like we are going in the right direction, right? Like I don't want to go in the wrong direction. I'm so tired That's of it. The best case scenario. Yeah. yeah.
1: Best case scenario. And you know, client is the if you want to look at only one variable that predicts outcomes, it's not the therapist. It's not the therapy. It's the client. You know? The client accounts for like forty percent of outcomes. This is like nothing to do with therapy, I mean. So I mean we have to use the biggest resource of outcomes, which is the client's own resources, their feedback, their experience. Yeah, and and I think that's, you know, people like Scott Miller and Bruce Wampold and Michael Lambert, I think Michael Lambert is really like a hero in terms of research. You know, he's like the first person to really like want to be OCD about (laughs) routine outcome monitoring. And I think it's super important, if not at least, like people don't have to do it, but at least to take the basic idea out from it, you know? Like ask for feedback. If you can, do some measuring. It doesn't have to be every single session, but try it the best you can. Try to train for negative feedback and and enjoy it. (laughs) Collaborate with your client, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> 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 or else. Or else.
1: Or else, else. Or else negative. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm sure you read Michael. So, my first introduction to him was uh, his article with uh, Erie Vlas.
1: That's such a cool article. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. That, the, okay, dude, do, do you know this awesome thing? I've been trying to interview her. We should yeah. team up. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, but I've been like I've been trying I don't know maybe for a year maybe two I don't know like it's impossible for like I hope she's listening to this because getting to her has been a pain in the ass but that article yeah I mean people everyone should read that article oh. it's such a
0: fuck <laughs> it really um, yeah it, I mean it turns everything on its head I think for me for people listening the biggest thing about the article was she sees you know 200 clients a year or something crazy, right? And um, a large number of them get better within the first five sessions. And a large number of that get, get better within between session one and, se- and session two. So the question is, if you get better between session one and two... And, and they keep the gains. And they keep so it- the gains. Yes. Which um, is before the therapy has started. What is going on in that room? <laughs> like... well
1: first of all I I think you know we can by now say that therapy starts before the first session therapy starts with whatever expectations the client brings into the therapy you know so just that mobilization of expectations is already a huge therapeutic factor, I think. But how is she doing that? That's the question. Well, that, well <laughs> you I- know, Mike did a fantastic job. So for people who really, I really think that they, everyone should read this, like it's a case study of what they call a super shrink. And they just go after her clients and interview the clients and interview her. It's a really fascinating read. But I think and you'll probably understand from what we've been talking about the next level of this would actually be like okay, let's just film the hell out of this woman yes. let's, let's <laughs> just, you know <laughs> videotape this <laughs> till our eyes bleed <laughs> because for sure there's something going on Yeah, verbally, and verbally But listen, from what her client says, she's clearly like a very charismatic person, clearly very intuitive in the sense of being very attuned, very non judgmental, but very directive in her own sense. Like she gave a lot of like self help material and all this kind of stuff, but all packaged in this like, you know, super. It seemed like she's basically super interpersonally
0: skilled. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, we need more of those, man. Yeah. And more of those studies.
0: And have you had a chance to, so you haven't, have you made contact with her at all?
1: No, I have never been able to contact her. I have uh, spoken with Mike a lot about her, Mike Lambert. So uh, actually Mike is coming to give a workshop here. We're organizing a workshop with him here in Lisbon next month. He's coming in a few weeks here. But we've brought him here to Lisbon for a workshop like two years ago. And when he he was here, I was a, I had a chance to talk with him about this study, and he was like, he was basically as surprised as the rest of us. He was like, someone like this woman reached out to us, and she was like, "Oh, the software is saying I have sudden gains everywhere. Maybe there's a problem." <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, maybe there's a problem with the software." No, wait, you actually are just a freak you know psychotherapy effectiveness freak
0: so which uh, goes back to the other stuff about you know the best therapists usually don't see themselves as the best whereas the worst therapists yeah. see themselves as being incredible yeah yeah yeah
1: that there's a really cool that's like helena nissen lee has this really cool uh study that therapist self doubt predicts better outcomes <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh, and important to say that self-doubt is different from self-criticism it's not you saying oh my god I'm a terrible, ter- terrible therapist no it's it, it connects well with the feedback thing it's like I don't know everything I need to like ask more about you know my
0: client's feedback and self-doubt helps with that you know yeah <laughs> man well look man um, my final two questions are you ready let's go let's roll okay first final question what are you reading now what's what are you like oh this is something that everybody needs to read
1: oh that's such an awesome question well as maybe you can suspect I have a pile of (laughs) books and articles always lined up but right now uh, I'm really into the persuasionist and social influence literature so I'm really digging into that just to try to find out more about that so basically like the last thing I've read has, has been actually placebo research that overlaps with this persuasion thing and there's a recent study by Irvin Kirsch and if people don't know Irvin Kirsch I really recommend he's basically one of the top placebo researchers and uh, he did this huge like antidepressant trials investigating the placebo effect and there's this recent research he and his colleagues did where they basically uh, investigated the importance of giving a rationale of the treatment, where they had like doctors prescribing a cream, like a cream for some, um, some disease, basically, physical ailment. And in one uh, group, they gave the cream uh, without a rationale, without explaining it. And with the other, they gave the cream explaining it. <laughs> and in the group where they gave a, ras- a persuasive rationale, the cream had more physical effect than the other. Group. Wow. Just by the rationale. <laughs> just by the rationale. Holy smokes. So this is why pers- like, placebo research is awesome, you know? <laughs> so that's
0: the I've last doing thing. that, I've got to start doing that. That's oh, yeah, yeah,
1: cool. Let me very, very quickly find out. In- just find out the name of that. Just so people can check that out. Rationale. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the the article is called "Is the rationale more important than deception?" Wow. Okay. Yeah. And it's 2017. The journal is called Pain. <laughs> That's the name of the journal,
0: Pain. Yeah, so if you go to do you th- have a, like a a, a digital copy of that. I do. I can share that. Oh, I would love that. That'd be great.
1: I will send it. Yeah, of course.
0: Can I can I recommend a book to you? Please do. This has been my, my favorite new book. Um, it's called Never Split the Difference.
1: I don't know it. Don't know. What is it?
0: It's a hostage negotiator for the FBI. Talking about his system for getting uh, people out. Wow. Yeah. That's um, fascinating. What have you learned Oh man, so many things, so many things. I think for me like the biggest the biggest part of it that's so impactful is like his outcomes are very clear. Right? He's, he's not tracking outcomes, but like if the people come home then then you know that you've succeeded, right?
1: Yeah, you did something right. Yeah.
0: You did something right. Yeah. Um and it's so field tested and his his big thing is um what he calls tactical empathy. Mm-hmm. That when you can tune into other people, see the world from from their view, yeah, um, you become incredibly persuasive.
1: Okay, you just gave me my next book. So,
0: thanks, man. Yes, it's been so good. I'd love to, you know, shoot me shoot me an email after you finish it. I'd love to just. Oh yeah, thoughts. awesome. All right, final question: What is on the frontier of the field?
1: Oof. Well you want the ideal answer or the real answer? <laughs> Maybe let's go with the mix. <laughs> <laughs> I think our field is very divided, has always been very divided. I think having an agreement in our field has always been a problem. I feel that, you know, let's take let's the, the case of psychiatry, which is kind of our cousin. Like Psychiatry has like a whole movement called anti-psychiatry, right? Well, that's unheard of in other fields like you don't see anti-dentists you know <laughs> no but seriously this is <laughs> this is a really important point in no other field is it debated to the point where you have different streams of thought where you have a, a whole counter field to it you know of,
0: of your own group right because like, yeah. you know, are psychiatrists yeah exactly high level psychologists who are saying this is wrong yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly, exactly, and exactly, you don't have high level dentists saying this is wrong to <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> or, or what they do is they create better methods within dentistry, yeah. they don't create an anti dentistry, you know. <laughs> so that's and that's you know, so that just shows you how crazy our field is in a way, you know. So when we think about frontiers, I mean. I'm very biased because, of course, my go-to answer is integration, but integration can mean so much different things, it basically means nothing. So I have to give a more specific answer. I think the best thing anyone can do, anyone, for the field is to be curious about the research. Like, I'm very biased, of course, that's my personal answer, but I think if you if you get excited with research because I've been very disheartened to see people thinking that if it's research it's boring I think the total opposite I think it's awesome (laughs) and if you get excited by it and you know you start reading one thing you get to the next I think that's the saving possible saving grace of the field and that doesn't mean that research has the answers because it doesn't. It's actually, you know, science is always very open-minded and in debate. So, you know, we have, even within researchers, they're saying a lot of different things. But still, I think it's the best bet. And just in terms of, like, even more specifically to your answer, here's my even more biased answer. I think deliberate practice can be huge. I think deliberate practice methodology and the idea of going more into procedural and experiential types of training and supervision can be a huge game changer. So that's a lot of what I'm investing in right now because I think that's really at the cutting edge and, you know, I hope soon we'll have even more
0: on that. Yeah. Wow, man, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for your for your time. Thank you so
1: much, Arne. This is a really cool talk. All
0: right. All right. <laughs>